You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, do you happen to remember what happened about 10 years ago right now? Vaguely. Uh, you know, I was thinking it's the 10-year anniversary of 2008, the great financial crisis. And when we were preparing for this, I actually didn't have many vivid memories, less than I thought. Um, yeah, neither did I. I actually, for me, the, it was. I can bring this back to podcasts because Planet Money did this amazing episode about the financial crisis. And that I was not in financial journalism yet. And that was the thing that actually helped me understand what had what was happening around us. I was in financial journalism at the beginning of my career in the late 90s. So I very much remember the Clinton years. But then I went to data. You know, I was working in funds, but we just had to get the NAV up, the shares out, the holdings. Our job was much more mechanical than tied to the markets. Whether the market's up or down, you still have to get that data in there. And that was my main focus. That's why most of my memories are from my own account and remembering the political aspect to that crisis more than, you know, the financial aspect. But going back surprised me, actually. And there's many different ways you could call call it a 10-year anniversary, right? But the, I think the one that, that everyone's going to hang their hat on is going to be the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, which happened September 15th. And I also think that over time, 2008 becomes this uh, boogeyman uh, that is so big, you just assume the whole year was this giant black hole. It casts this long shadow. It still gets brought up. But when you go back, uh, there were definitely some some rough points, but it was much more diverse than just this general general black hole of, of market. And then let's bring it back to ETFs, because that's what we're going to spend the episode talking about, both what happened that year and what's happened since. And you found, what, five or so data points that we're going to walk through? Yeah. So in preparing for this, I went through, I just found, I thought, five stats that I found interesting, surprising, and pointed to deeper issues within how ETFs handled and behaved in 2008. And because neither of us were really on the front lines, we're joined by a a wonderful guest, Christine Harper, who's the editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. And in 2008, she was actually covering banking for Bloomberg News. So she was literally at the front lines as basically the world started to to crumble. So she'll be joining us and kind of helping us bring a different perspective of what it was actually like to be watching this thing in slow motion. This week on Trillions, remembering 2008 and what it all means now. Okay, so Eric, you've got a stat that you want to start with. Christine Harper is joining us. She's the editor of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. She's also the author of a book, forthcoming book about Paul Volcker, which we're all really excited about. Eric, what's the first stat? The first stat is ETFs took in $175 billion in flows in 2008. That is a bit shocking. Give me some context. Right. So first of all, the context is I find this data shocking because the word on the street, uh, especially from active funds, is Hey, all you people going to passive, they're all weak hands. They're going to flip out as soon as the market gets tough and it's going to, the market will blow up even more because of all these ETFs. But if you look back in 2008, ETFs took in $174 billion. Index mutual funds took in 
another looks like 90 billion and active mutual funds lost 259 billion so if anything it was the active mutual fund investors who got um, you know scared or panicked and left whereas the ETF investors again this is a net number over the year within months there was definitely some volatility in and out of some products but that is quite a shocking number in my opinion given that you would think that ETFs are used more by retail and advisors less sophisticated investors they trade intraday and so they would be uh, sold off uh, in mass and people running for the hills Christine I want to I want to rewind the clock to 2008. You were on the finance team Mm -hmm. covering Goldman Goldman and 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 Morgan Stanley. How familiar were you with ETFs at that point in time? So at that point in time, I knew they existed. But what I'd like to say is that at that point, you can almost think of the run-up to the financial crisis as a run-up in investment in illiquid products. Mm. I mean, Goldman Sachs disclosed in early 2007 that they had $111 billion of assets that they defined, I got to read this phrase, as more difficult to fund on a secure basis during times of market stress. That was up. That was more than double two years earlier. Everybody was, you know, plunging into mortgage-backed securities that were put into CDOs and then into CDO squares. Things that were almost inherently illiquid with the assumption that they would always go up in value or they could always find liquidity. And they always have these, you know, great acronyms of MBS and yeah. CDOs and But the point was they were all traded through banks that none of them were on exchanges. They were very difficult to get out of when people wanted to get out of. So my theory is that ETFs almost by dint of the fact that they were exchange traded funds became the one of the go-to assets just purely for for because liquidity. Because you could use them. Yeah. I yeah. mean T-bills were traded trading negatively at that period. People just wanted liquidity no matter what the cost. So it makes a lot of sense to me that all this money that was desperately getting out of illiquid credit was going into uh, exchange traded funds because also another thing that was happening at that point for the banks there became this vogue for reporting what did you ever hear this term level three assets? Mm. Probably not. I've heard, it rings a bell. That but. became very very important to investors during the financial crisis because what it is is it's the most hard to value assets on banks' balance sheets, and those were the ones nobody wanted, right? So exchange tra- anything exchange traded is a level one asset. That's great. Then level two are things where there's a li- some inputs that are a little bit less clear. But level three are the ones where they're basically it's their own model that tells them how much it's worth. And so, literally, investors were demanding. We were sending headlines on the amount of level three assets that banks had, and that pe- banks were trading on how illiquid they were. I'm sure those stories were getting highly, highly read. Yes, and so any amount of any any, it, it makes sense to me that people are going into exchange traded funds purely for liquidity. And the other thing, which we've talked about a lot. The, you know, CDOs and the FDS were part of the problem was that you didn't know what you exactly held. right. Yeah. There was no transparency, exactly. and so o- almost the perfect antidote to that was an exchange traded fund, exactly right, where you could see what you're you were getting. Yeah, when, when um in the book I wrote, shameless plug. Um, it, one of the advantages that what's I w- the name of that book? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I don't want to hear it again. <laughs> the ETF you, you toolbox. You don't even know what it is, do you? I did. I just told you. <laughs> Insti- That's not Insti- the name. The institutional ETF toolbox. Okay, good. All right, Boom. we're friends again. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, one of the advantages that I will riff off this, which was when I was going through and interviewing people about advantages, is fiduciary vehicle. And I think that speaks to the level one asset. The fact that there's a prospectus tied to it, the fact that it's a 40-act fund, I do think that probably gave people a lot of comfort in a time of derivatives. 
And the fact that you know it trades like futures, but it is backed. Those stocks that are in the ETF are with a custodian physically backed, probably did help that year in terms of being a contrast to these other products. And there's real-time pricing. Right. That's very transparent. Okay. <clears throat> Point number two. This one riffs great off of the first uh, conversation, which is that ETFs traded just about $25 trillion worth of shares. Now, that's significant for a couple reasons. First of all, it's more than the U.S. GDP. That's a lot of money exchanging hands. Second, that is by and far the most ETFs ever traded in a year ever to this day. And they only had a sixth of the assets back then. Why? Here's why. And it just speaks what we – when the going gets tough, ETFs tend to be traded more and more. They they sort of thrive in volatility. They are trading vehicles. So when people are uncertain, that's when they tend to go up. And they tend to be about 28% of the equity trading every day. But in highly volatile times, they can be 35, 40%. And this has been indicated since then. Um, In fact, I've uh, frequently charted SPY's dollar volume with the VIX. I mean, it perfectly overlays. Mm. In other words, it's almost like ETF volume is a fear gauge. And part of the reason is people can use ETF to short. There's options on them. There's all kinds of ways you can use them to protect yourself, go long, speculate, and ultimately they're liquid. So on the portfolio, if you don't want to disturb your individual holdings, the ETF might be the first thing you move around to deal with what's happening out there. I like the idea of ETFs as a fear gauge, right? And we talked about that actually a little earlier in the year with what happened back in February when we also saw some uh, volatility. When you look back and can kind of compare the volatility at those two moments and the volumes that were happening, what do you what do you notice between what we saw earlier this year in 2008? How do they compare? Just size. Uh, in you know early February was pretty intense. Uh, the spy traded about 90 billion on a couple days. That's almost its record was 100 billion. Uh, just about back in 2008. So it had a day or two in February where it almost traded as much. But you have to remember, SPY is much bigger than it was back then. So if you adjust for the asset size, 2008, you could argue, was two or three times more than anything that's happened since. That's how mega that Mm -hmm. year was and certain days. And there was even a month where SPY traded over a trillion dollars. And to this day, that's the most it ever traded in a month. Which Which month was that? October. That was the roughest month of the the year. So what... what, um how much bigger is the ETF market now than it was 10 years ago? Six times. So now it's got $3.6 trillion and it had about $600 billion back then. So that is why that number, that dollar volume number, because when you make it dollar volume, you adjust for the asset. So that's, that is an un- – I mean, if you take $600 billion and put into $25 trillion, what is that? That's the amount of turnover that year in ETFs. It's a large number, way larger than normal. And Christine, can you – now that we know October was that – that that month with that volume. Can you put us back in what it was like in 2008 then? Well, October, you're right. I mean, that was a, the most dire month. That was a month where, you know, so it was September 15th. Everybody knows Lehman got, uh, went bankrupt. Merrill was acquired by Bank of America. A week later, Goldman and Morgan Stanley converted to bank holding companies supervised by the Fed. They also both got equity injections. Uh, in, in Goldman's case, it was from Warren Buffett. In uh, Morgan Stanley's case, it was from this Japanese bank. Um, but it wasn't until October that Paulson, then Se- Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson, brought all the CEOs of the nine biggest 
financial institutions at the time to Washington and basically told them they were going to all get equity. This was the tarp, the first round yep. of the tarp. And it, that was a point at which people started to feel like, okay, there's a bottom to this. But right up to that point, and that was Columbus Day. I remember mm. it was a, it was a national, it was a federal holiday. Um, so one of those convenient federal holidays where everybody actually works. But, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Closed. So the markets were open. I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but it was a, it 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 was really unclear, and there was also that vote in Congress. I think in early October before that, when they voted down the TARP originally. And that was, I think you'll remember, that was when the market really went high. That was one of the worst days in the equities market we saw. Uh, and then they reversed the vote. But I wouldn't be surprised if that day when the vote on TARP, the first vote on TARP happened, whether that wasn't the day when you saw the biggest trading. And one thing to add here is, even though ETFs, I think, got a good grade in 2008 were trading, and I think they did well. I just saw the Turkey ETF traded fine through the, all the drama. Uh, Brexit, they did well. But they've had a couple problems. August 24th, 2015, uh, that, was a, that was some crazy days in the market. That day in particular, uh, what happened was ETF started trading at discounts. And it wasn't just some exotic ones like XIV. There's been some sort of exotic blowups here and there. But this was like Vanguard dividend ETF. And I think what, what really is important to remember here is as long as the exchange – is having pricing for the stocks and the bond market is available to investors and there's futures pricing. As long as these inputs are available to market makers, ETFs will trade fine. I call that the plumbing. It's when the some hiccups start to emerge. On August 24th, they had made rules from the flash crash that had limits. So if an ETF started to trade, um, I think it was below or above 10%, they just halted it. So what happens is stocks were halted, but the ETF wasn't. And so market makers did not know how to price what the ETF was worth. That's the worst. They've cleaned that up since then. That's why Brexit did fine. But that's so. I just want to point out that ETFs are they have a good record, but there have been some cases. Usually, it's involved if there's lack of pricing in the underlying holdings of ETFs. That's when you can have a problem with the ETF trading. That's interesting because I think it was in October 2008, also when they halted short sales because uh, the banks started complaining that their stocks were falling too fast, basically. <laughs> and uh, and so it's interesting that ETF survived that without any hiccups, because that caused a lot of issues. Yeah. If that happens, the ETF will trade, but it will move away from its fair value. And sometimes that fair value is actually stale. It hasn't taken into account like uh, other data. Um, so the takeaway here is that, uh, you know, they're not, they are vulnerable, if, in fact, there's a problem with the anything that they hold. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Okay, number three. We're going to talk about active, right? Yeah, because two-thirds of active mutual funds underperform the S&P 500. This was big for a couple reasons. One, the market was down 37%, so you had to be really bad to underperform it. That, to me, I think left a bad taste in a lot of investors' mouths because I think they thought, hey, look, I'm paying you this money. Couldn't you have sidestepped this at all? And, and you're seeing some high-profile people actually pull off like you know, some, the biggest win of all time, basically, with some of their bets. Yeah, and normally two-thirds of active equity funds will underperform the benchmark, but a lot of uh, the active managers will say, well, that's just because of quantitative easing in this bull market. It's made it harder to outperform. But this data shows that it's kind of doesn't matter to the market. And the two-thirds number to me is really uh, the cost issue. If you took away all their fees, you'd have two-thirds of them outperforming. So cost is a big issue why they underperform. But the other issue is that active managers, I have empathy for them. If you're an active equity fund, a lot of times you you can't not hold these big stocks in the S&P 500 because if you don't hold them when the market's going up, you'll lag and get fired. So that's what's developed what's called closet indexing. And I don't quite blame them because advisors like something that mirrors the index. And so a lot of them were just holding the same stock. So there's no way they could have possibly sidestepped it when they're holding the same thing. Or outperform. Yeah. And that's the conundrum they're currently in. I, I mean, I'd talked to fund managers all that year, and there was a sort of desire on the part of a lot of them to believe the worst was over. So you had the Bear Stearns collapse in March, and then we interviewed financial stock investors who were convinced, okay, that's it, you know, let's get in. And of course, they got slaughtered in the second half of the year. Same thing, people were getting into Fannie and Freddie convinced that and there was no way it would feel. I mean, there were just, yeah. nobody had ever seen anything like this. So they kept jumping in trying to catch this falling knife and getting burned by it. And then, because and it also, I mean, I think, I, think, uh, I think hedge funds didn't, didn't prove themselves to be such great hedges and with a few very notable examples. Yeah, and here's one example. The worst of the big active funds was Fidelity Magellan. It was down 49% that year. That must have been one of the falling knife catchers. Okay, number four. Number four, gold showed the meaning of zero correlation. And what I mean by that is gold is perceived as a safe haven. Gold was up 3% that year. So while it didn't go down, it didn't exactly offset the losses in the S&P 500. Because it's not correlated with anything. Correct. It's got zero correlation. What's interesting, the next year when the market rebounded like 24%, gold rebounded right with it. Well, I think what it is correlated with is, is inflation fears. And so as the central banks went in and started pumping in liquidity late in 2008, early 2009, that's when you saw a lot of big investors say, uh-oh, this is a time to start hoarding gold and buying real estate and preparing for you know hyperinflation, which, of, of course, by 2012, they realized wasn't coming. And I think that's true. Gold has a lot of currents coming at it. Um, you know, there's, uh, it, there's emerging markets buyers that come in and weird, you know, you... I learned to appreciate the zero correlation because it doesn't do what anybody thinks it should do. And that's why I think it's a decent diversifier because it's that's special. Almost everything's negative or positive correlation, but it's not it's a shaky hedge and I think that's where it gets mischaracterized a lot. But what was a good hedge, what really worked was long-dated treasuries. TLT, which is the 20-plus year treasury ETF was up the exact same amount the market was down. So if you had long-dated treasuries, you completely offset your losses in the market. And the best performing ETF that year was EDV, which is an extended duration tre- treasury strips. The duration on that's like 27 years. So it has the highest interest rate sensitivity possible. That was up 50% that year. 
And as long as we're talking about performance, you pulled a couple other numbers that are sort of noteworthy too, right? The VIX, right? Yeah. So the VIX was up 77%, and um, their VIX ETPs are controversial because they always they have roll costs that can be 40% a year. So the VXX That'll bleed you. is down 99% since launching. However, in a crisis, that roll cost can turn into roll yield. So the VIX futures index, which VXX tracks because VXX wasn't around in 2008, it was up 126%. In other words- if you held VIX futures and rolled them, because the demand for short-term VIX futures was so high, you actually were buying low and selling high constantly, and you actually made 126%. One guy in his garage did that. <laughs> well, that's like the black swan, right? <laughs> totally. If you're yes. a black swan investor, yeah, like, you buy that. Well, that to me, I call that the jackpot potential, and that's why the VIX products are media-proof. They've never gotten a good review. They're like an Adam Sandler movie. Like They've literally never – they always get trashed, but they see a lot of volume because when they work – there's nothing like it. Um, where I, li- I like when people um, give possible black swans. I'm like, if you know it, it's not the black swan, <laughs> right? Because you'd be in your garage trading it right <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> it's some unknown thing that we don't know. Okay, number five. The junk bond ETF saw inflows of $1.5 I-, I found this astonishing because HYG is the big junk bond what, ETF. What do you attribute that to? I don't know. In fact, what's interesting is if you look at the HYG's performance that year, it was okay until about October. And then it went down 30% in 10 weeks. I mean, this was a bloodbath. It was the it was the reason people worry about junk bonds. This was the kind of sell-off that has people shorting junk bond ETFs every now and then in mass. And it went down that much. And there was a couple days of outflows, but mostly it saw inflows. There were buyers apparently, for the ETF at that time. I don't remember. Again, I wasn't studying as closely, but um, that's when it saw its most inflows. And then when it hit that bottom, boy, were the flows really coming in. So clearly, there are these vulture-type buyers out there, which should give some comfort because HYG, to me, is the canary in the coal mine in terms of people worrying about the ETF structure because they're like, well, yeah, sure, it can do equities. But junk bond, you can't really wrap that up. I mean, mm-hmm. Carl Icahn and Howard Marks have both come out and said you cannot have a liquid instrument tracking something illiquid. Right. And it was a rough year. There were premiums of 12% and discounts of 8%, but it, it survived. It saw inflows. And then after that, it's obviously uh, built its fan base. Was it relatively small at that stage? Yes. I will say the small is a double-edged sword because, yes, it was – that's a great point you bring up because I will say that premiums and discounts in HYG have shrunk so much over the past 10 years because more and more market makers make a market in it. However, HYG has vampired away some of the liquidity from the high-yield market. And this is my big worry about ETFs is not the asset growing. It's the vampiring of liquidity because if more and more people just get lazy and say, I'm just going to trade HYG instead of trading high yield debt uh, myself because it's easier, that does steal some of the liquidity. So we have a stat that says HYG is still only 2% ownership of all the junk bonds, but it accounts for 13% of all high yield debt trading today. And it was nowhere near those numbers back then. So on one hand, there's more market makers watching it, which you could argue is good. But on the other hand, it's a way bigger part of the market, which means there's probably a, arguably less liquidity in the junk bonds. And this gets back to something I think Christine can talk about, which is complacency. Right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, when everything's going up, as we've disca- described, and, and, all of these products are good. And we're in the midst good. of everything going up for yeah. the longest period yeah. of time ever. So everything was terrific in 2007 when all of the subprime CDOs seemed to be performing and people weren't so worried. So that's why people were loading up on them. But as soon as it turns around, people were completely shocked at how illiquid and how, you know, little they understood these products. And... 
the fear, I think, is that ETFs have become such a part of the furniture now. People just assume they're always going to work. There's no example of them failing in a big way. And so people get complacent about that. And and yet the market is morphing in really important ways, as you've been describing. And so that could mean the whole landscape is extremely different if and when asset classes fall, especially if they fall in some kind of correlated way. Yeah. And I think ETFs right now, um, they own about 8% of stocks, but they account for about, like I said, 25 to 30% of the trading. In a crisis, as long as the stocks are trading, somebody can ARB and the ETF investor will have a market. But if there are no buyers for junk bonds, for that time, there's probably going to be a huge discount that uh, uh, happens in HYG or whatever ETF it is. So I always tell people, ask yourself this question. You have three choices. You can use the ETF, you can use an active mutual fund, but that manager will have to try to sell those securities at the end of the day anyway, if you redeem. And the third thing is do it yourself. So on a really hurricane type day, when the big one hits, which would you rather try to sell? Because none of them are going to be great. And so you sort of have to just decide from there. And if you pick the ETF knowing like all of that, it's good. But if you go into the ETF thinking it is utopia because it has traded so perfectly, I do think you'll be disappointment disappointments because you went in there thinking it's like this perfect magical vehicle, but in effect it's not. So I also want to talk about a few people who who doubled down in the midst of all of this. Can we talk about that? Sure. Because Vanguard in particular, what what happened when yeah. you looked at those investors? This is this is unbelievable numbers. I was shocked. Um, again, I, I looked this up because uh, on Twitter, a lot of people will say, oh, wait till the big one hits. These passive investors, they're going to lose their marbles. So I go back to Vanguard. Vanguard took in money every month in 2008, including October. They took in $90 billion that year. The rest of the industry combined lost, I think, about $100 billion. It's in these times of crisis that Vanguard um, sees their absolute flows go down a little bit, but they increase their market share. That's when they gobble up a little market share against the um, other competitors. But I was stunned. This is Navy SEALs-like disciplined. If you're actually putting in money in 2008, October, Vanguard attracts really like hardcore, disciplined, boglehead-type investors. Now, some people say since then, they've attracted more common folk who aren't like bogleheads. And we'll, we'll see if that plays out. But I have seen these mini-crisis. Vanguard does seem to be stickier than most. There's one other uh, 2008 anecdote that I think, is, because we're talking about 2008, we have to bring up, which was Smart Beta was around then. And there's a product called, called PRF. And we've talked about this briefly before, but Smart Beta basically starts its process every quarter and then rebalances. And PRF saw something and took advantage of it. Do you want to describe what happened? Yeah. So in the industry, we call this the immaculate rebalance. <laughs> That's just the best name. I know. This Do you have a shirt that total, says that? Because if they don't have that on their shirts and hand them out, I got to give credit shows. to Ben Johnson at Morningstar. He came up with it, but it's it's actually really fascinating. In 2008, let's face it, it was it was a tough to buy bank stocks. If you were an active manager, you'd probably be fired on the spot if you went in and bought Citigroup, right? Well, smart beta products are just active, but put into a rules based index. So they're like robots. They have to just screen the stocks every quarter, and if they're cheap and they pass the screens, they have to buy them. Well, PRF is a smart beta product, and it it bought up all these bank stocks in late 2008 to the point where it had 50% financials in 2009. 
as we've said before, it's like walking into the burning building. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we trace PRF in the next, uh, I think it was like six to seven years. That one trade, that one rebalance accounted for just tons of alpha that kept giving for years and years and years after that. And what's interesting is the guy who runs that index, which PowerShare's license, had institutions using that index in separate accounts. They called him up and said, do not do the rebalance. We're not buying Citigroup. And so he didn't. And of course, the ETF outperformed the SMA. And that, I think, adds value to the robotic nature of smart beta. But my colleague Ben will bring up that a lot of investors were unable to hang in there in PRF. So the this brings up behavior and the importance of hanging in there. If you pick a strategy and you like it, you got to stick with it. I mean, did, what, what, was, was there any robot buying Lehman Brothers in sort of July or August two, 2008? I'd have to see if it checked. That's a good question. That's a good research note. I don't know if Lehman would have checked off momentum, but it, Lehman fell right so fast that it didn't even, it wouldn't have been a quarter because these things usually look over quarters or semi-annually. It wouldn't have become a value stock for long, right? It, like it did, we didn't hang at like a low PE right, for a long time, depending on when the robot resets, right? But it's possible. But I just do recall seeing some of the bigger banks in there that have gone that'd on to a, live. That'd be a good note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember distinctly going for drinks with somebody who was a, a, a consultant, and he was he was bragging to me about how he just loaded up in Fannie and Freddie because it was so low, couldn't go any lower. You know, how'd that work out? Very, very badly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this idea of buying stuff cheap, it is it is really tempting. We, we see this all the time uh, with uh, with stocks. And my wife, actually, like she wants to buy JCPenney. And she just, she's like a natural value investor. And I, I understand that. But, you know, it can go lower. <laughs> <laughs> the, the floor it, it gets has, lower than yes, that. Yes, there's a trap door. Yeah. And but I mean, a there, there were, yeah, I mean, there. The, I think one of the, you know, several of the hedge fund managers sort of, made their names also for recognizing that some of these banks, for instance, were not going to be allowed to fail, right? And so Citigroup was a good investment because there was no way the government was going to let it fail. Christine, can we bring it back and you can help us maybe put a bow on all of this? You were on the front lines. You've seen how everything's evolved for 10 years. You've seen Eric's stats now. Can you help us make sense of this? What What's the takeaway that you get from this conversation that we've had? Well, for me, one of the biggest lessons of the financial crisis, having been a reporter covering financial companies at that point for maybe five, six years, I was pretty convinced these people all knew what they were doing. They're they're very smart. They're highly sophisticated, very numerate, very data-driven, and I was shocked the number of them who were completely taken by surprise and didn't see it coming at all and actually didn't really understand how things worked. So it gave me a sort of a much more skeptical view of the experts in the financial industry. I mean, you know, people who are running these firms really didn't know what was happening. So I I just kind of always keep that in the back of my mind, no matter how good something sounds and no matter how well it's worked, I, I... I think it's always a good idea to remain somewhat skeptical and do your own homework. And the people who came out looking smart are the people who asked the most questions. And to that point, you know, uh, in going back to the Barry podcast, when he talked about why he thought passive got so big, he did bring up these large sell-offs where it did the experts did look a little bit like the emperor wearing no clothes. And that over and over, I think, is where you have a lot of investors going, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to put it in this like dirt cheap S&P thing and then that that's all I'm doing. 
But there is some concern if everybody feels like that and there's a crowd into this one, you know, dirt cheap S&P trade. That's, I think, where I have to think there's some credence. The S&P in particular, that index is so all powerful because it's it's big and passive, but also active managers are orbiting around it, too. And I think that is where there's some legitimacy to it. But I agree with you. I think if you just judge this stuff not versus not versus reality and you think of the other options available to you to get exposure, when you make a choice that way, I think it's much better approach than just buying it because you saw a commercial or, you, you know, you heard somebody talk about it or everybody else is doing it. Right. Christine, one final thing. Can we talk about your book for a second? <laughs> sure. What's it called? Uh, it's, first of all, I will say it's not my book. Okay, I all right. helped Paul Volcker write, the, write his memoir. Um, so he has written the story of his life. He's almost 91 years old. And for those who are not familiar with Paul Volcker. Oh, so Paul Volcker was the f- chairman of the Federal Reserve. He killed in the hyper, in- or not quite hyperinflation, but serious inflation problem we had in the United States in the late 70s, early 80s. And he's a very he, important rule named after him. He has the Volcker rule named after him because he was really, he was shocked and horrified during the financial crisis and how everything suddenly got treated as though it was a bank, right? Banks are supposed to be special entities, right? They have special rules. They have special protections. Uh, Suddenly, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were treated like banks. Suddenly, all mutual uh, money market mutual funds were treated like banks. Everything was getting bailed out as though it was a bank. And he thought this was a problem, which I think a lot of people do, and, uh, and wanted to make a distinction. You know, if you're a bank, there should be certain things protections you get because you're important. You're kind of a utility for our society, but you shouldn't put yourself at undue risk. And that's a Volcker rule. But anyway, so, but he covers everything, you know, the end of Bretton Woods, fighting inflation, financial rulemaking, his personal life story, lots of things he did after he left the Fed. And so it's a, it's a good book and he does it all in about 300 pages. So it's not a long read. And the book's called? Keeping at it. And it comes out It comes out November 27th. Can't wait. Good Christmas gift. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you would like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Christine Harper at CR underscore Harper. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.